It is well, it is well with my soul. How many of you can say that tonight? It is well with your soul. Why? Because you're good people? Because you've done good things this week? Maybe even because you've read your Bible? Max. It is well with my soul because no matter how bad things are going, no matter how I failed my Savior, he holds me fast in everlasting arms. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> I have been uh, meditating on and I have been grappling with a subject the past few months in my own meditations and studies that we have all probably grappled with through our lives. And just when I think I've got a handle on it, I find out that I am just baffled. It's a mystery. And what I'm talking about is the Trinity, or the triunity, or the substance of the Godhead. And though I'm still mystified and baffled, I like to think that I've at least come to peace with it. And I guarantee you that I will know it in fullness and in truth, every detail of it 100 years from now. I guarantee it. Not because of 100 years of study, but because I will be with the Godhead in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will be at his side. I won't be at the back of a very large audience that's surrounded by the elders and the beasts and then the second tier of wonderful believers and then the third tier and I'm way at the back. Because if that's the way it plays out, I tell you, I'll hide there forever. I'll either hide there forever or cower or hide behind someone but you know, when I see my Savior, I think what I would do is I would fight my way through that, cloud, that crowd to be at his feet. But the beauty of it is, I don't have to do that. Because my Savior, my God, is omnipresent. And he can hold you in his arms while he's holding me in his arms. And all of your loved ones, and all that have gone on before, We'll not only have front row seats, we will have, we will have a shared seat with the Lord. And I delight in that. I know it'll be a harsh first encounter when I'm judged for the things I've done and the things I haven't done. And then those tears will be wiped away and I will spend an eternity with my bridegroom. And if he sends me to the far corners of, I don't think it's going to be our universe, but a universe, he won't send me alone. He'll go with me. What a beauty it is. And that's how, why we can say it is well with our soul. Now, if you're without Christ, can you say those words? <clears throat> Some might say, 
I'm at peace. I've lived a good life. I've done my best. I'm better than most. And I'm hoping there's not a God. And if there is a God, I hope that <clears throat> he realizes that I am better than most. I actually give to the United Way, some might say. I help people across the street. I tore out my front lawn and I put in mulch. I tell you what, people that do that, they've got a halo over their heads. <laughs> they think they're wonderful. <laughs> and, then, and then when the reservoirs are full in three years, they'll pull it out and put the lawn back in. <laughs> oh. All right, as a, there's a lot of scripture I just want to go through quickly. This is really a study that could take <clears throat> multiple, multiple uh, hours. I think two hours tonight will be more than enough to cover it. Um, just, as a, just as perhaps a, a starting off point, let's just read the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Most of you know it. I'm reading from the authorized version. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he says, thy throne, O God. You got that? But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? <clears throat> Here we have a, in Hebrews an introduction by the un, unnamed author. But it is an appeal and a treatise to the Hebrews, to the Jews those that have turned to the Lord and yet are still in need of clarification, in need of instruction, of doctrine. It's an, and it's an entreaty to those that are outside the faith as well. 
and appeal to them that through their own logic and their own wisdom are denying that Christ is the Messiah, the anointed, the Son of God, the kinsman redeemer, he who was prophesied in Isaiah and long before that. But here in Hebrews, it lays out for us a beautiful, <clears throat> a beautiful apologetic of who Christ is and his relationship with God the Father. You know, the question, uh, it's, it's said that Christianity, you know, they, they claim there's three great monotheistic religions in the world. And those of the other two religions call the three the people of the book. They call them the people of the book. However, the other two consider us, uh, consider us wrong or, or pagan and that we claim that we believe in one God. But they say, no, you don't. You believe in three gods and you name them by different names. And so there is that that, that is, uh, you know, you have to ask yourself, if I'm talking to one of those people, one of those dear people that's perhaps seeking for the truth, seeking for God, how do I defend the reality of who Jesus is? Paul has asked of us that we be instant, in season and out of season. That we stand ready to give an answer to every man according to the things of the word, of the gospel. And it's, it's a difficult question to ask of a true skeptic, uh, or to answer of a true, true skeptic. So I kind, of, I kind of laid out little categories of what I consider the Godhead. We believe that there is one God. The Old Testament is rampant with verses, and I've listed many here that we can go over, that speak of God's insistence that he is unique, that there is none before and there will be none after. As early as in Deuteronomy, we read that uh, you were shown these things that you might know that the Lord is God. Beside him, there is no other. And then in Isaiah, we read, you are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. In chapter 44, it says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Chapter 45, he repeats himself, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In chapter 46, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And I have a list of many more. God has made it clear through the prophets that he is the only God. Now, in a world where Judaism, the children of Israel, were probably the only monotheistic 
nation and faith in the world. And even though they had the prophets and they had the oracles and they had the word of the very word of God, they still returned to the idols of their neighbors, didn't they? They planted the groves. They worshipped the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth. Yet they, were not, they knew that their God was one God and that he was invisible. And God made it clear that not only was he unique, but that there was none other even similar to him. In other words, there wasn't a God 2.0. And some people look at the Trinity in that way, that there is God the Father, and then there is another version of him, God the Son. Well, he makes it clear that there is none other but himself. So we have to put our, uh, grapple with that and put our minds around the fact that there is but one God. And yet, we read in those same Old Testament verses, not the same verses, but in the Old Testament, how that from the very beginning, from Genesis, his name is used in the plural form. But it is the unified plural form. As if there was, there is a, you know, you think of a cable, a cable of many strands, interwoven, strengthen that cable, but you think of it as one cable. And that is how the, the word, I'm not saying that the Lord is like that, but that is how the word is used. You speak of a cable that is made of many strands. It is a unified one. It is a plural, a unified plurality. Elohim. We all know that. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Boy, I could preach a sermon on that verse. I love that verse. In our image and in our likeness. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in that unified form, knowing the image of the eternal son, not the son that's born in AD zero or BC, whatever, the eternal body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who Adam was fashioned after. Not because the Lord was tripartite, therefore we are tripartite. That is true. But in our image and in our likeness. Um, the, the form in which it's used, when it speaks of unity, there's, there's a Hebrew words, uh, yachid, which is the number one. Yachid, I don't know. In uh, Arabic, it's wahid. We got any Arabs here? Wahid. Yeah, we got one. <laughs> but in, in uh, Hebrew, it's yachid. And it's the numeric one. So when you speak of God, there is one God, you would word the, use the term yachid. But if you use the term echad, or in the New Testament, hen, it is one meaning unified, like one cable. It's a unified, a, unit, a un, united one, not the numeric one. And so we read throughout scripture all the references to the plurality, or I wouldn't say plurality, but the plural form of God. And I have a list of about 15 scriptures that we can refer to here. Um, and it begins right from Genesis and it goes on at the Tower of Babel, let us go down and confound their, 
their, their tongues. And it goes on and on, and there's so many verses in the prophets. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Let me pick a couple of the good ones, the best ones here. Now, the term Yahweh used in the Old Testament is how we would see in our, in our Bibles the term the Lord with a capital L, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Thus says Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. This is in Isaiah 45. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. In Jeremiah 23, it says, The behold, the days are coming, declares uh, Yahweh, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell, dwell securely, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our Redeemer, Yahweh, our Redeemer. The Lord says of the Redeemer, his name is the Lord, our Redeemer the Lord, our righteousness. And there are, I have a multitude of these that are listed here. Okay, now we've gone from a sole God, a single God. There is none other and there is none other like him. When you say that there is one God and you call him eternal, And then you place a second God, if there were one similar or created after him, would that God also be eternal? No, they, they, you couldn't have that. If, if, you're, if the God of heaven is omnipotent and there were a second God and he were equally omnipotent, that's an oxymoron. I have all power and you have all power. That is not, that, that cannot happen. So that reinforcement occurs. And yet the Lord says, the Lord said unto my Lord. We've got this throughout the, the Old Testament. And then it brings up another question. And that we read and we understand that God is invisible. And that no man has seen God at any time. No one can see God and live, we read. And yet Moses saw the back parts of him. The Lord covered his eyes and he saw the back parts of him. And it changed him, just seeing the back parts of him. If this God is a disembodied spirit, as we read in the Gospels, when the Lord is speaking to the Samaritans, he says, you know not what you worship. He said, for God is a spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. The Lord Jesus says God is a spirit. He goes on to say that no man has at any time seen God. And yet we read in the scriptures of how there were multiple appearances of either the angel of the Lord, who God allowed to be worshipped, and we call these what? Starts with a C-H-R, these appearances. Christophanies, we call these Christophanies, or appearances of the incarnate human-bodied Christ in the Old Testament. But wait a minute, he wasn't born for 500, 800, 1,000 years later. 
well, you know, I told you I don't have all the answers, but I've come to peace with it because I believe that the, that the physical body of the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. Yes, it was introduced to you and I 2,000 years ago. But that body we read in the epistles was slain from the foundation of the world. Not the essence of Christ, but the body of Christ. You can't slay an essence or a spirit. That body is an eternal body, prepared long before the incarnation in Bethlehem. And so we have the ability for the invisible God, that part of the Godhead, that Trinity, to be inapproachable, incomprehensible, and yet to be approachable and comprehensible to a sinful human. How can that be? I'm still grappling with that. Let's go on. The Lord, it is claimed that he is invisible. Yet we know that he is, that he is visible and has been visible throughout history. In Isaiah, we read that, uh, well, we sing it sometimes and we do Christmas plays on it. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. Oh, let's stop there. The Mighty God. For unto you a child shall be born, and his name shall be the Mighty God. This child that was born became visible, didn't he? He became visible in, in a brief period of time to a blessed generation. Can you imagine how blessed it would be to cross the path of him? Whether you recognized him or not, can you imagine how the earth must have rejoiced to have the Savior walk and tread through the fields and through the ways. And those that were touched by him, those that were healed by him, oh, how blessed. And the prophet says, you did not know how blessed you were in his day. You rejected him. And so comes the mighty God in the form of a babe in Bethlehem, becomes flesh and dwells among us. So the invisible God becomes visible. Is it a contradiction? Be ready to have a defense to those that are going to bring up these. You know, there's clever, clever people out there that'll bring up every nuance and every contradiction. And they, all, they might know some of the scriptures better than you do. How, how can you claim that Jesus was God? God clearly is invisible. No one can see God and live, and you say the Lord Jesus is God. Now, of the, of the many ways we can look at this, <clears throat> we can't rely on our own wisdom and our own understanding. We have to look to Scripture. And you know, uh, many, much of the world and many believers 
even are confused in the fact that we believe that there is almost a hierarchy of the persons of the Godhead, that at the very top is God the Father, the old graybeard, the powerful creator, the one that has thunderbolts in his hand, that sits upon that lofty throne. And then on a second tier is the Lord Jesus, who was begotten and was introduced into this world, veiled his deity, submitted to the will of the Father, therefore must be on a lower, lower tier. And I admit to you, this is one of the hardest points for me, is that how someone co-equal to the Father, co-equal to the Godhead, actual, an integral part of the Godhead, can be removed from it, can be separated from it, or was he? He can't be. He can't be. That word echad, <laughs> the unified, God is unified. That the Lord Jesus, when he walked this earth, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, when he was starving and athirst, he was the mighty God, the everlasting Father. How do we deal with that? And then the introduction of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he's mentioned in the, Old, in the Old Testament, but his work and his person are really introduced to us at the Last Supper and the promise of the Spirit. And what is his place? He's almost removed from the, the big two. You've got the big one, the big two, and then you've got this aloof thing. And for a young believer and for, for me, it's hard to grapple with this. But it is the divine will, not of the, just the Father, but of the Godhead, that there be this, this form of relationship with the human. Can you and I comprehend in our flesh the mind of the eternal God? Can we, can we comprehend his power? his essence, the fact that he is eternal, which goes beyond just being trillions of years old. Eternal means, I would say, extemporal or atemporal, beyond time, outside of time, the creator of time. Can we grapple with this if God were to introduce himself in the spirit to us? No, he's tried through the prophets to present to us his plan of salvation through the coming Messiah, through the coming Son, the Redeemer, our Lord, the Redeemer. It is a necessity that God the Father appear to man in the form of a man. It is a necessity. In Timothy we read, for there is one God, one and one mediator, he doesn't say Christ Jesus or the Lord Christ Jesus or the God Christ Jesus. It says the man Christ Jesus. Do you understand how important this is? That the one God who Jesus is became a man that he might be the eternal mediator. Eternal mediator. 
He had to become flesh to be like us so that we might comprehend him. Oh, how, how the apostles wondered that they had the joy, the privilege that their ears had heard, their eyes had seen, their hands had handled him, the eternal word of God. So we see that this Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, the man Christ Jesus, he came down and he submitted himself. He took on himself a position of obedience to the Father for the purpose of glorifying the Father, for making, for, uh, making it possible to bring unto himself a bride, to prepare a kingdom of priests and kings unto himself. So he subjected himself to the Father. He subjected himself to the law. He who was without the law, above the law. He who made the law. He subjected, he subjected himself to the law. That he follow it in every regard, even to baptism, to circumcision, to, every, to everything. To the feasts, to the sacrifices. He subjected himself. He, subject, he subjected himself to secular authority as well as spiritual authority, as well as the authority of the priests. He subjected himself. He became obedient. The omnipotent God, the omniscient God became subservient, obedient, submissive to the will of himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. He, it says that he, despising the shame, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? Why? Was he so inferior or subservient to God that he must follow this? No, it was the plan. It was his plan. It was his love why he came. And so we see a savior that is uh, sub, uh, submitting himself and obeying and, and uh, being obedient. You know, this morning in the break of bread, I was I opened my Bible to Isaiah 52 and 3. And you know that very famous passage begins with, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be made very high. And it finishes with, But it pleased the Lord to bruise him. My servant will be exalted, extolled, and made very high but it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's the essence of the submission of the Son, the eternal physical Son of God, to, to the Godhead, to the Father. Uh, there, I have many verses that speak of his submission to the Father, but... Then there's the fact that we've got to now reconcile 
that this unity that we began with and then evolved into this plurality and then this almost separateness of the entities, what is the resolution to it? And believe me, this, these are all things I grapple with, but I'm gonna try and wrap it up and let you, let you know how I rest easy at night. The Lord Jesus said of himself, he says, I, I and the Father are one. In Corinthians we read, but to us, there is but one God, the Father, of whom, all, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things are all things, and we by him. <clears throat> John says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. He's called the Everlasting Father. This child is called the Everlasting Father. He's called the Mighty God. Here's a clue to us that the Son of God, dare we say, is the Father. When he was in the upper room, he told his disciples, and on that walk through the veil of the Valley of Kidron on his way to the garden, he says, I will that you be in me and I in you as I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The unity, the oneness of the Father and the Son, I wish that for you and us, that you be in me and I in you. And therefore I've given you a comforter, that you will not be alone. These are all declarations of the eternal Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Father and his Spirit. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. In chapter 10, he says, I and my Father are one. Uh, we're going to close with my favorite verses on this subject. I love this. Thomas. <clears throat> Thomas comes late to the meeting. He says, you're crazy. Unless I put my hand in his side, I, I can't believe this. The Lord Jesus says, Thomas, come hither. Thrust your hand in my side. What did Thomas say? Five words my Lord and my God. In closing, let's look at chapter uh, Colossians. I'm probably bringing up far more questions than I am answering anything. But I hope this encourages you and inspires you to study this on your own. Because it is something we're all going to know some of us sooner than others. <laughs> We're going to know the truth. Some of you, you might know in 100 years. Me, I'll know in 40 years. <laughs> I hope we all know it tonight. I hope we all know it tomorrow. I hope we're all there tomorrow. Any of you got big plans you can't break tomorrow? Anybody got a... Uh, anybody got a... Uh, 
<laughs> colonoscopy plan for tomorrow. <laughs> they, oh, I got to make that. Don't take me, Lord. I need to go to that. <laughs> no, Lord, take us now. You know, last verse of the Bible says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That should be our prayer every day. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse, uh, beginning at verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He is, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. <clears throat> and, then the, and then verse 20, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto him, unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you with philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Verse 9. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love that verse. I love that verse. To me, that verse is as clear as crystal. It says, for in him, and it's speaking of Christ, in him dwells some of the nature of the Godhead. No, what does it say? It says, dwelleth all, all of the fullness, so it's like a double whammy, not all of the Godhead, but all of the fullness of the Godhead Oh, how does it put it? Bodily. In that eternal body of my Savior, who I will see soon, it is the fullness of the Godhead. When someone asks you, why do you, why do you believe in three gods? Or do you believe in one God and then there's a God 2.0, you know, or 3.8 or whatever the latest version is? No, no, no. My God has, has a body like mine. There's one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. When we see him, I know we've read in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation of that beautiful scene around the throne, where I saw on the throne one whose, whose visage looked like a jasper stone and a sardine, and it was glowing, sparkling. And out of the center of that throne came, rose what? Starts with an L-A-M-B rose a lamb as it had been slain. In chapter 4, it says, They sang a new song 
unto him, worthy is he, for he has created all things. In chapter 5, they sing of him, worthy is he, for he was slain. That's our, that's our God. Up in heaven, I hope I meet the first Adam, my great-great-great-grandfather. I hope I meet him, and I'm going to look on him. And I'm going to notice that on my, on my great-great-grandfather Adam, there's not a scar on him. But on the lamb, the last Adam, he'll be differentiated from the first in one, one major way, that he will have marks on his head and on his hands, his feet, his side, and his back. That is my God. So when someone asks me to explain the Trinity, I'm not going to go down 12 points. I'm going to say, what are you talking about, Trinity? The three in one is in the fullness, dwells, dwells bodily, dwells fully in the body of my Lord Jesus Christ. That is my God and my King. When he comes with his saints and his armies, on his vesture is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That, to me, is the trinity. That is the beauty. In times past, before we had that body presented in Bethlehem and then on Calvary, God the Father, invisibly or through the Christophanies, proclaimed the coming of his Son. Once our Lord ascended, he gifted us with his person via the Holy Spirit. It's not the spirit of another. It's the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, my God and Savior. I don't claim that that is the ultimate. Th I'm going to know the truth soon. But that's how I've made peace with the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a Savior, a Savior that we can trust in, believe in, that we can rest in. Oh, Father, one that we long to see and to hold. Father, we thank you that you have not given us a God, a Savior that is invisible or beyond our reckoning, beyond our ken, beyond our touch. But Father, a Savior with a glorified body, one that we will share. Father, we'll have a body like his where we can spend eternity in communion with, with thy Son, our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him in his own precious name. Amen.